Hello, friends, and welcome to episode 883 of the Juicebox podcast. Today's guest is an adult female living with type 1 diabetes who wishes to remain anonymous. Her story starts with a parent who wrote a book about her diabetes and the impact that had on her. The conversation just goes on and on. I honestly think this might be the longest episode of the podcast I've ever recorded. I really hope you enjoy what comes next. While you're listening today, please remember that nothing you hear on the Juicebox podcast should be considered advice, medical or otherwise. Always consult a physician before making any changes to your healthcare plan or becoming bold with insulin. Also remember that if you have type 1 diabetes or are the caregiver of someone with type 1 and you're a U.S. resident, that you can help type 1 diabetes research by simply filling out a survey at t1dexchange.org. You can get 35% off your entire order at CozyEarth.com by using the offer code JUICEBOX at checkout. And you can save 10% off your first month of therapy at BetterHelp.com forward slash JUICEBOX just by going to that link. This episode of the Juice Box Podcast is sponsored by U.S. Med. You can get your diabetes supplies the same way we do, from U.S. Med. Head over to usmed.com forward slash juice box or call 888-721-1514 to get your free benefits check and to get started today. This show is sponsored today by the glucagon that my daughter carries, Gvoke Hypopen. Find out more at gvokeglucagon.com forward slash juicebox. I'm going to start if you're ready. Yep, I'm ready. So we're going to start this one a little differently today. My guest today wishes to remain anonymous because of some of the things we're going to talk about. So you're not going to hear her name, and uh, that's pretty much it. So can you tell me a little bit about yourself? Yeah, so um, let's see. I'm 33. Uh, I was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes when I was 7. Um, so in no, in November, I'm not sure what exact day. So I just passed the, what is that, 26th year anniversary. Yep. Um, and I'm a therapist. That's my job, a mental health therapist. So that's been kind of fun through COVID, um, doing a lot of stuff over Zoom and telehealth. Um, yeah. And other than that, I'm here to kind of talk about, you know, what it was like for me growing up with diabetes mm -hmm. with I don't know, I would say maybe some complicated family dynamics um, and just kind of learning through my own therapy and stuff what, how that has kind of affected me. Okay. You think this is going to be an After Dark episode? Yeah, that's what we had yep. originally talked about. But if, if you feel like it doesn't have to be by the end, well, that's totally fine. Not, it doesn't have to be. Not have to be. It's however it goes. Um, <laughs> well, you know, we can keep your name private, but you sound like a... Uh, the lead actor in a, any number of John Hughes movies. So I think we know about where you live <laughs> in the country. Uh, but, but that's okay. So let's, let's pick through this a little bit. So you were diagnosed when you were seven and you're a, you're a therapist now. Mm -hmm. therapist. Yep. Okay. All right. So do you remember anything about your diagnosis? Yeah, I, I remember 
everything, really. It's it's actually kind of weird. I feel like I have very few, if any, memories before my diagnosis. Um, it's almost like that was maybe a like a traumatizing part. Um, I one thing I remember distinctly is we we left I, when when we left. I went to school and I fainted during the pictures for picture day. That was what um, caused them to bring me in. My parents to bring me in. My dad brought me to an appointment. Um, and anyways, that morning I had left the house that I'd always lived in. We were building a new house. I learned that day I had diabetes and I never went back to that old house because the move into the new house happened while I was in the hospital. So um, like one thing that's weird is I really don't remember that old house. I don't remember what it looks like at all. And I lived there for for seven years. Um, But I just feel like there's there's not really many memories before that. But I feel like I remember things during the the diagnosis and after pretty well. Yeah, so you kind of had a traumatic experience at the same time that another experience, which I'm sure not traumatic, but still would have been impactful on a seven-year-old, like moving out of their lifelong home and all that sort of just happens on top of each other. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, Have you seen pictures of the first house? Yeah, I've seen pictures um, and we, we didn't move far away. So... I definitely like drove past. We would drive past our old house and I know I would be able to take you there. I know where it is. I just don't remember like the inside of it. Um, My sisters, I I have two older sisters and just growing up, they would like tell stories. Remember when we would, you know, do this in our room or in that basement. And I just, I just don't have any sort of um, memory of like the inside of that, of that house, which they always you know, just can't believe well, now it, I, it does feel weird. I now I think you have me and everyone who's listening walking through their family homes and where they've lived. <laughs> Cause I'm, I'm, I don't know when I was a baby, I lived in an apartment with my parents that I only know existed because my, my parents drove past and said, Hey, when you were first born, we lived here. Um, but mm-hmm. I remember the second place we lived, but in fairness, they lived with my grandmother for a little bit and I, that would have been a house that I kept going back to as I was older. So I don't think I remember being a child there, but I do remember the house. Where's the first place I remember being a child. It's the place we moved after we left my grandmother's house. So by then I would have been six or so. And it's interesting how, I can't believe you brought this up. I got a message from a kid, a a kid. I'm 51. I got a message from a guy that I grew up with at that time in that first house that I in that first place we lived kind of after my grandmother's house. And he just was saying hi. And we were talking back and forth. He's not a person I've kept up with. And I remember his name first and last, his brother's name, all the guys we ran around with, the girls that were around. I remember who my babysitter was. And I have the worst memory. But that part of my life is stuck in my head in a different way. Um, Mm -hmm. and it's interesting that you lost that spot. Oh, that's, that's that's something else. Was it a traumatic, I mean, you passed out during photo day, but other than that, how was the diagnosis? Um, yeah, it was. So obviously looking back 2020, we know that there were other symptoms. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I don't remember this, but I guess one morning I had come down, um, like just in my underwear. Cause I needed, I couldn't find my 
clothes or shirt I was looking for for school. And I remember my mom was really like taken aback uh, because I was so thin. Um, and so she tells me about that. Uh, I also remember that I wet the bed um, and I obviously had not wet the bed for uh, many years at that point. And I, I also remember that I would just beg for, for a drink. I was so thirsty. Um, and I remember my mom would be like, you just had a big, like adult glass of, of juice. You can't have anything else. You know, of course, she was giving me juice, which was making it worse, but we had no idea. Sure. And I do have one memory of like sitting in her lap. This is before the diagnosis, probably just a few days. And I was just sobbing because I was, I was begging her for like more liquid. Mm -hmm. And she was just like, honey, you like, you've drank so much. You can't, we're not going to have any more. And I just, I was so thirsty. Um, Obviously, looking back, we now know, but yeah. didn't know at the time. Um, and so I think they were already like, a, I think there might have even been like an appointment scheduled. But then it was like later that week that I passed out during the class picture. And my dad came and picked me up and took me to the doctor. Wow. Um, yep. And then I remember us getting called back to their office um, and... I don't really remember the doctor telling us, but I, I know we were told and then we were brought back out to the waiting room. Mm -hmm. And that was the only time I've seen my dad cry. Yeah. Um, and it, he, it wasn't, you know, like audible, but I just saw tears. And I remember I asked him if I had eaten too much candy, if oh. I had made the cause this or made this happen. And that was, um, that was 96, right? 96. Yep. 1996 and still as a seven-year-old you somehow made the connection in your yeah. head that you had diabetes and it might be because you ate candy yes uh, and i have absolutely no idea why i would have you know thought that right. um i'm just wondering if maybe the doctor when was when they were describing it to me as a young kid was saying that it was something that we're gonna have to like you know, be careful or be real aware of how much sugar I ate. I'm mm. wondering if they just said something like that when they were trying to explain it. And led your mind and if, in that direction. If for me, I was like, oh, well, did I eat too much sugar? Uh, um, yeah. So, I but I, do, I don't remember the conversation really with the doctor. Okay. Um, and then I remember my dad, you know, called my mom um, and that again, he was crying Um and then we went to the hospital and I was in the hospital for a week. Mm. Um, Cause at that time that was just what they did. They didn't, you know, send you home in the same day or after a day or two, mm. uh, I was in the hospital and, you know, had diabetes educators come in and um, I wasn't in DKA or anything. So okay. um, can you picture, yeah, can you picture that hospital room in your head? Yes, I can. Yeah. And my dad stayed with me pretty much the whole week. Um, they had like a cot brought. So I remember we watched movies together and um, there were parts of it, you know, that was kind of, kind of fun. Um, I remember the nurses letting me like run up and down the hallway a few times um, because I was just like, you know, wanting to run around and be a kid. Yeah. And I remember them kind of 
giving me permission and and giggling and watching me just run up and down the hallway a few times during that week. So do you have any other type one or autoimmune issues in your family? Um, my grandma's sister had type one, Mm -hmm. uh, but that is it. No, no other autoimmune disorders that, um, I am aware of or that anyone else is aware of. Um, I'm wondering if like, if I might have other autoimmune disorders, I've been having some health stuff that we're trying to figure out, but so far we don't know what what it is. What are some of your symptoms? Oh, geez. Um, well, the, the main thing right now is just like it, like tons and tons of joint pain. Um, it probably started about two years ago where it was just, you know, a couple joints. And it's really progressed over the last year where I, I really have pain in all of my joints. So I know we're talking about like doing R- tests for R-A. rheumatoid arthritis. Yeah. Yep. Um, and that's, yeah, that's something I've struggled with. Uh, it wasn't always joint. A lot of times it was just muscle, but I've wondered, do other diabetics struggle with like being in just in body pain? Like I feel like for a 33 year old, my body hurts more than it should. <laughs> you ever have the feeling, um, do you ever have the feeling that your bones hurt? Um, no, not my bones, but, but definitely the joints, just the joints, you know? Yep. Um, but no, not, not in the middle or really in between. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a simple blood test for them to look for the markers and any, yeah. Yeah. Rheumatologist. It's uh, and they'll bring you to office. They have you do like a couple of like, yeah, it's like walking tests and bending and there's stuff they're looking for that they see it pretty easily. Um, and then the blood tests of course uh, should help as well. Although there are people who have it, who don't, who don't test positive for some of those things. Um, in the blood yeah, blood. so there I am calling back today because I know that a referral was put in for oh, me wow. to see a rheumatologist. So that's where, what I'm going to go do. Um, so we haven't run the tests yet. The other thing is, and I, if you look, I guess, this up on the internet, it, they're not sure if this is autoimmune. So I guess this would be the only other possible family autoimmune disorder. Um, my dad earlier this year, my dad was always very athletic, still is. Um, and he refs and umpires and is running around all the time. And probably about a year ago, he started to have just hor- horrible joint pain and kind of similar to mine. It was like all of it, it didn't happen one joint and then another, like they all started hurting at the same time, which hmm. is just not really how arthritis usually presents. And he went to doctor after doctor after doctor and they kept telling him like, you know, you're fine. You're just getting older. Well, he finally uh, met with a, I think it was a neurologist and he was diagnosed with polymyelasia rheumatica. Um, And so that's another thing that, that they want me to, you know, be tested for because he has had that. And the good thing about that is it is, you know, some, I don't know if it's curable. It can always kind of flare up again, but they just put you on a low dose steroid for like three months and then wean you off. And within like two days of being on a steroid, all of his pain was gone. And prior to that, like there were days when like my mom needed to put on his socks, he couldn't bend. Yeah. And that's just so unlike him. So 
I oh. don't, I'm not sure exactly what's going on, but something is going on. But I have an appointment here in a couple weeks. So. Po- polymalacia rheumatica is mm-hmm. an inflammatory disorder that causes muscle pain and stiffness, especially in the shoulders and hips. Signs and symptoms usually begin quickly and are worse in the morning. Most people who develop it are older than 65, rarely affects people under 50. Yep. So, yep. So that, that was the one thing that I, when I saw my dad for Thanksgiving and, you know, he saw me and he just said, say, oh, sorry, I just gave away my own name. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's okay. okay. I'll bleep it out for you. Don't worry. <laughs> but it's okay. But he, um, he said it, he, I can see, I mean, sometimes when I'm walking, when I get up, like I just, I look like an 80 year old person. I'm like, very visibly limping and he just said i i really think that you have what i had and we kind of looked and i saw the age but um yeah i don't know what it is well, um i wish we'll you have lu- to see i wish you luck because it's obviously Thanks. no fun i do know um if you listen to the show jenny has ra and she oh, ma- yeah she manages it pretty well with um specific diet and exercise okay. and stuff like that so um we actually just talked about it in a recent episode. There's a how we eat episode that's called how Jenny eats. So okay, it's in there. Cool. I'll have to listen. To, I I do listen. Um, I've listened to a ton. Although I will look, like right now, I'm a few months behind. I didn't listen for a while. It's okay. Um, but so I I love Jenny, and I know, but I didn't know she had um, yeah. rheumatoid arthritis. So yeah. that's that's good to know, especially if I do end up getting that diagnosis. Right. That, yeah. She'd, she'd be a good person to reach out to. Okay. Well, um, so you're diagnosed, you're young and I guess oh, we want to get to your story. Obviously people are like, mm-hmm. yeah, why don't you start with that Scott? But that's eh, how I like to do this. So, um, w- were there problems as a child? Was it smooth sailing and then it hit a speed bump? Like what was your progression like from seven through like high school? Yeah. Um, I, I guess I would say that there were problems, but I don't know that I knew it or anyone would have known it at the time. Um, I think that was what was kind of confusing. Um, my dad is a writer, and so he ended up writing a couple books, writing and publishing a couple books for kids and people when they are diagnosed. And I was a part of that. The first book, um, he had me like illustrate. And then um, we, I, I wouldn't call it, I don't, it wasn't like an official position, but I was almost kind of like a spokesperson for JDRF in our area. I would give tons of speeches and um, go around at hospitals and give out the books and talk to kids. And I was on the news a couple times for it. And so I feel like I was always thought of, or people would have thought like, this is like the poster child and family for like living well with type one. Okay. Um, and it has taken me into my adulthood to really figure out how um, alone I felt in it and how much responsibility I was put in right away and just kind of what an effect that had. Um, I definitely am someone who tends toward the side of being like more anxious or like perfectionistic. And so I don't think that people would have known. Um, 
but just processing and knowing stuff and and realizing how hard it is for me to ask for help or let anyone in on the diabetes now um, is just, I've had to kind of process where that started and why. And I, I think that started right away. Um, One one thing that was always talked about as like kind of a a badge of honor. um, I remember my, I can hear my mom particularly saying it to everyone, you know, my teachers, people at church, um, just everyone, how, you know, independent I was. Uh, One thing that is like distinct about me, I guess, is so I was diagnosed when I was seven, but I instantly, I always gave myself my own shots and tested my own blood sugar. And my mom would kind of tell everyone that and how amazing it is that, you know, I wanted to and always, always gave my own shots. Um, and I think as a kid, I, I didn't know what to think of that. Um, what I know now is I just know I had to give my own shots because of stuff that was because of our family situation. Um, there wasn't always going to be someone there for me to depend on. And so I think I just knew that I had to do it. Um, I have stepkids now. And as, as they have, you know, come to age seven, one is older and one's younger. I just realized I would be looking at them and thinking, gosh, they would never choose or maybe even be able to like give themselves their own shots. Um, But I had to, because my mom was not very involved at all. Um, She was a teacher my dad struggled. Um, he, he was a writer and then, um, and he was doing quite well, but then the recession kind of hit. And pretty much after that, he struggled to have, um, like a, a consistent job or consistent income. And Mm -hmm. so my mom was working a lot and my dad was an alcoholic. Um, he didn't drink daily. I would say he was, I don't know, I'm putting this in air quotes, but like a functional alcoholic, Mm -hmm. Um, meaning that he just he when he drank, he drank way too much Um, and he would, you know, get kind of belligerent. Um, He would be passed out. And like I said, he didn't drink every day, but he he drank a fair amount, like at the very least every Sunday. you know, was golfing or football and he would be, you know, passed out. And so I think I knew that even though my dad was the one who was by far the most there for me, I knew that he wasn't always going to be there. Right. And I think I knew that I had to be able to step in and not ask, not at, need to ask for help. Mm-hmm. Do you have a lot of the, um, classic like child of alcoholic problems uh yeah i yes i think so can you as a therapist tell me which ones you recognize in yourself oh geez um i i would probably have to pull up the the list if i wanted to go, (laughs) go through like clinically but i mean i know that i feel like that i am a helper um that I like caretake, uh, you know, very, very independent, um, very like 
afraid of doing something wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, I really, I obviously, I don't like being around people who are really drunk, um, especially anyone like who is kind of an angry drinker. Cause that was definitely my dad. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, yeah. I, I guess that, that hypervigilance thing where you just, you feel yeah. like something's always about to happen. And, and that's where that feeling of, I can't count on you comes from. And, yeah. th- and then it's worse if, if he's the one you're counting on. Yeah. Right. Cause your mom's off working. She's covering for him in a different way. And, mm-hmm. and so, and now you have to be the one. And then on top of that, their, <laughs> so their behavior forces you into doing something that a child shouldn't have to do. And then you're celebrated for it on the other side. So it's, con- yeah, it's and yeah, it's confusing in two different directions. Yeah. And you know, Scott, one of the things that I, I find the weirdest. Um, and again, like I, I have done, you know, my own work and there, I think there's always more work to be done. So I'm not saying it, I'm, you know, over all of it, but like, I have talked a little bit with my parents about this, but not, not a whole ton directly. And I don't know that I ever will. I don't, I don't know that I need to do that to like heal. And I just, I don't know. I don't want to make them feel bad. That would be, that would be an alcoholic kid tendency right there. Like I'll just work through it on my own. I don't want to make them feel bad. Um, But one of the weirdest things that I've kind of realized in adulthood, you know, course I was very kind of enmeshed with that whole like book writing process I remember even pushing back against that at times because it felt like um my diabetes like my my dad would you know just talk about it all the time and like send me articles about it and I just remember I would say like I'm not my diabetes like I don't care I don't need to be reading articles and diabetes books and doing all of this stuff all the time. Um, you know, I'm already doing these like book signings and there's just, there's enough, but I don't, I don't want to do more of that. Right. Yeah. Well, so then when I went off to college and I mean, I, there were several years of break of like not, you know, seeing the books or doing anything with them. And as an adult, one day I went through and read them and this was after I had gone to therapy And I realized that some of like what I would say were kind of traumatic, even maybe neglectful, medical neglectful situations were written in the book. Um, Like they're not, clearly they aren't things that my dad thought were not okay Mm because he tells the stories of them um, as kind in kind of a a comedic way um, in the book. And I just remember the first time reading and thinking, my God, I forgot. I thought, forgot that was in here. And just, you know, I feel like this used to be something that everyone said how great they were and what we're proud. And maybe people do find them. But me feeling, I'm like, great, we're telling these stories that are like really painful. Do you have an example Um, of one of them? Like one that sticks out to you? Oh, yeah. Well, okay. So the other thing is, is my, so my dad stopped drinking because 
my mom, um, I remember we essentially had like an intervention. Um, and my mom had told him like, if you don't stop drinking, we're going to leave. I'm going to take the girls and we're going to leave. Um, and I remember my dad, uh, left for one night and I, God, I, I think I was about 10 and I was just sobbing and begging him to stay. Um, and I think part of that too, was because my, again, my mom really knew nothing. Like there were times where, where I think if my mom wouldn't necessarily know, like if my blood sugar was low, would that mean that I needed insulin or would I meet, need food? Um, she would know that I needed one of those two things, but I don't know. I think I'd have to kind of take the lead on which one. Right. And so I don't know how much of that was tied into it and how much of it is just you, a kid doesn't want their parent to leave. Right. Mm -hmm. So he, but he, he came back and he stopped drinking. He didn't, um, he didn't drink at all from the time I was maybe about 10 until I grew, you know, I left the house. Um, but he also didn't do any sort of treatment or any sort of therapy. Okay. He came from a, from an abusive household. And so I would, I would say that he was, he exhibited a lot of the behaviors of like a dry drunk. And the biggest thing is just anger. Um, if I look back at his dad, like my dad broke so many of the cycles, you know, he was at, never physically abusive. Um, he, while there were absolutely times he was verbally abusive. He wasn't always verbally abusive. He could also be, you know, maybe 80% of the time he was a wonderful, gentle, loving dad, Yeah. but he just had anger issues. And so what I also remember is that after he stopped drinking, like you would think, well, maybe I could lean on him more, but he would get so mad if something went wrong. And yeah, there were a couple stories. Like one time I came home from movies with my friends. I think I was maybe like 12 and I tested my blood sugar and I had, you know, been mindful of what I ate. This was back in the day of like shots and regular insulin and all that stuff. And my blood sugar was maybe like 350. And my dad just flipped out and was just yelling at me. Um, like, why did I do that? Don't I care? I, I, don't, I don't remember. I just remember him yelling to the point where I like ran out of the house and I locked myself in the van, I, in the family car. Mm -hmm. And I was just crying. And he eventually came out and apologized and, you know, said that he was just afraid. Um, I think that was the only time he, he ever apologized. But that story is in the book. Um, Do you have the feeling that his upbringing was such a show that even if he were to drag himself 80% out of it, he's still going to be the dad you got? Is that kind of the idea? Uh, like it's just, yeah. yeah yes. Although I deep? think, I think if he had ever did any therapy, um, it could have been better. But I, I don't, I mean, I, first of all, no one is perfect. We all have our stuff, of you course, know, so yeah. um, I wouldn't expect, but I, I do think that, you know, had he done some therapy around his childhood, um, I guess it would be my hope that hit the anger would be better. Um, do you, the other can I, thing Can I ask you I, real quick? Do you have that yeah. feeling because of, of, of things he things that he 
showed that made you think that he was right on the precipice, but just didn't know how to get over the hump? Does that make sense? Uh, I think so. Meaning like on the precipice of being able to even like conquer that or, or show up. Yeah. Differently? Like, Is that what you mean? like he sees, he sees the issue and he wants to oh, be on yeah. the other side of it, but he just doesn't have the mm-hmm. tools to get on the other side of it. Is that how you feel about oh, him? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. 100%. And it was definitely like a huge topic. His dad was a big topic and he lived, you know, close to us. He was actually, he was like a wonderful grandpa, but he was a horribly abusive dad and husband. It was weird. It was incongruent. Like he couldn't have been sweeter and more like loving and supportive as a grandparent. And then I would hear him in the other room just screaming and swearing at my grandma and or my dad. Um, and so I, we, he would always talk about how much he didn't want to, you know, be like his dad and how and and like he did break the cycle as far as like he is not abusive um towards my mom you know my my grandpa was physically abusive verbally emotionally everything um and like i said my my dad was i would say verbally abusive to everyone in his life when he was angry hmm. um which i would say happened more for sure than like the average person um and it wasn't daily either the the other story that is probably what more Uh, It it certainly brings up more emotions for me than the other example I gave was, you know, when I was doing my own shots, I don't even know if you would know what this is. Do you, do you know what I'm referring to when I say that I had an injector? An injector. Huh. (laughs) Hold on. I might not know. (laughs) Okay. I I don't even know too. Let me Google and see if like, what does anything even close to it come up? Um. Well, kind of. Now, it does show a syringe. So, okay, before pumps were a thing, and when I was um, diagnosed, and their pens were not really a thing yet either, there were these big pieces. It was like, I don't, I literally don't know how to describe it. It was a big piece of plastic that you essentially loaded the syringe in. You pulled like a, a trigger back. And then you would, you know, just put it against your skin and push the button and it would go in super fast and it would, you know, press the plunger to inject the insulin for you. Um, When I first got diagnosed, I just did the shots totally manually. When we found the injector, that was wonderful because I remember it allowed me to like reach spots that I couldn't, you know get all the way back with, with just handling the syringe, Mm -hmm. you know, I, I could do all of the loading and stuff in front and then reach back and, you know, just have to push a button and I could give myself a shot in the butt where I couldn't do that with just a syringe. Okay. So anyways, my, um, I, I was, so this would have been before the age of 10 because 10 is when I got on the pump. Um, and so I just, that's to keep in mind for how old I was. We had a little dog and, you know, again, I'm doing all my own shots. I don't really even remember. I'm very good at math. And I, I think that was possibly started because of the diabetes. Cause I don't really think they helped me figure out my dosages either. Um, like I really remember doing my own shots and drawing it up. And I, 
I do not have any memories of like my parents doing that and handing it to me. Mm -hmm. It was very independent. And anyways, on one of these times, I didn't put the injector away and our dog chewed it up. And I was supposed to go to my grandpa, my grandma and grandpa's house that night for a sleepover, which I just was looking forward to so much. And when my dad saw that the injector was chewed up, he, you know, went into one of just his like yelling um, fits. And he said that he would, I couldn't go because now, you know, I couldn't give my own shots, which doesn't entirely make sense because I did them prior to the injector, but I did like the injector and he wouldn't buy me a new one. Yeah, you're you're getting punished, right? Yep. He said, like, this is your fault. You were irresponsible. Um, You know, again, now using my own kids as an example, it's like I would never be expecting my eight or nine year old to take out their medicine, do it and put it away every single time, four times a day. Mm -hmm. But that was kind of the expectation. Um, And anyways, I was sobbing. Uh, He said I couldn't go. He said he wouldn't buy me a new one. And he made me call my grandpa and tell him why. Um, So I did. And what I do remember is about an hour later, my grandpa showed up to the door, (laughs) sorry, with an injector. And so he went and bought one. Um, And I, I just remember kind of feeling like he had you know, saved me in that moment. And that story is in the book. Yeah. Well, two, um, so two things. And again, just not in a way that feels like he thought, I wish I wouldn't have done Said that. that, yeah. that wasn't. Yeah, he's probably, he's probably proud of himself for teaching you a lesson. You know what I mean? He's probably like, yeah. oh, she did the wrong thing and I I, I fixed her. <laughs> like, yep. it's a, it's such an odd, it's only, it's not that long ago, right? 1996 does not seem like that long ago, but Arden called me from college. She was there for like two weeks and she goes, Hey, I broke my phone and she's never Arden's had an iPhone since she was five. Okay. Because of di because of diabetes and, yeah, and yep. she's never broken one. And so I, I was like, Oh, what happened? She goes, I fell out of the bus, which by the way, if she ever comes back on the show, you have, everyone needs to hear the story of Arden falling out of the bus. But, um, <laughs> she goes, and, and, and I didn't even let her finish. I'm like, are you Okay. And she goes, yeah. And she starts telling me, like, scrape my leg and blah, blah. And it was embarrassing and, like, that kind of stuff. We're talking about it. And uh, listen, I mean, I'm not – I don't I don't think anybody's in the position to just willy-nilly buy an iPhone. They're freaking expensive. But I just mm-hmm. was like – I'm like, that's okay. Don't worry about that. I was like, just take it back to the dorm. It was the glass in the back. I was like, just take scotch tape and just, you know, cover the back. Put your case back on and we'll – figure it out when you get home. It never occurred to me to be like, well, you have to come home from college now. Like mm-hmm. it's, it's just, it's a generational, like I really think that that last group of people that grew up in the fifties, like I, I don't even know, I haven't done the math, but did your dad, were, were his formative years like in the forties or the fifties? Um, He was, uh, let's see, I have to think. He was born in 53. So like, I don't know if a formative, but certainly, yeah, he was, yeah. you know, well, he was raised, he was raised by years. people who lived through that time and like that whole thing. Yeah. I really, can I say something that's going to sound crazy? This is not, not about your dad. Yeah. We got one more generation of people to get rid of. And then I think we're going to take a leap. <laughs> I, I seriously, I'm sorry to say it like that. I think we're going to take a leap forward because of, because we we now have a couple generations of people who did not grow up in 
in that space where everything was like, we're all broke and we don't have any money and there's nothing that's ever good going to happen. And like, like we need, mm-hmm. we need those people who grew up like, listen, it'll probably trend the wrong way. Like 50 years from now, probably nobody will be able to take care of themselves because <laughs> yeah. not one person left who remembers, you know, fighting Jerry, but, um, yeah. like, but, but, but the point, <laughs> the point, boy, that's a reference that only older people are going to get, but, um, but it's, um, there's there's got to be a middle ground that I know we don't find it as a society. We usually swing back and forth pretty greatly, but but there is time during the swing where you get people like you, right? Or mm-hmm. or even you know me who grew up not well and but recognized it, and and then mm-hmm. was lucky enough to meet a a woman who like when my stuff would happen, like when the things that my dad would say would come out of my mouth, my wife would be like, "Yo, hey, listen to yourself." You don't feel that way. Mm-hmm. What are you saying? And then, and then I could recognize, like, oh yeah, like my dad would yell about this. And it took mm-hmm. me, it took me time too. Like I'm not gonna lie to you. Like we, it's hard to break free of. But we're gonna get into a generation of people who don't have as much to break free from. And then more kids are gonna break their injector or fall out of a bus, and the response is gonna be, oh, are you okay? Not yeah, you you bastard like you've ruined everything you know what i mean like yeah because your dad didn't even think that and you know the way i know that is because your grandfather who you described as you know your dad plus genghis khan like like he showed up and he was he knew he knew what happened he knew what he did to your father and he knew what your father was going to do to you and he showed up with that injector to put a stop to it don't Mm -hmm. you think that's what happened um, I've never thought of it that way. I guess I hope that's what happened. Um, it, it's hard to know. Cause he was, I mean, until, until he died, he was very abusive. So he certainly never broke that cycle with my dad. So there's at, that doesn't mean he didn't know he might've known and just not been able to stop it. Oh, but yeah. like my dad went over and took care of him, you know, every single day for the last several years of his life. And he would, you know, just absolutely, you know, yell, throw things. Mm-hmm. He, he was just a really, um, a really tough guy to his, people he loved the most or was closest to and somehow he turned that off for the grandkids and his daughter's in-law daughter-in-law it's interesting um yeah he was like kind of a different person but you we would see the other person like he would you know be in the same room and he would just either be screaming and swearing at his wife or kids or be very sweet and gentle to his grandkids or son's wives. Depression, you think? Um, you think they're depressed? Um, I know my dad is depressed. I, I remember I always, that was another fear I had. I had a fear that he would um, like hurt himself. Uh, he has pretty caustic sense of humor. He's He's hilarious. Like if you talk to people, they would all put top of the list that he was funny, um, but probably not the most appropriate humor all of the time. Um, and I do remember what he would joke a lot about, um, like committing suicide. Um, and I think for me as a kid, I didn't, you know, always take that as a joke. 
Um, and I remember being afraid because he was, uh, he worked out of the home. And so, well, like in the home, but I'd never understood why that was the term. Uh, that was confusing me, but he had an office in our house. And I remember I would be walking home from the bus and be very anxious that I will hope dad's okay when I oh wow get home. Yeah. Jeez. And you were anxious too. So on top of that, mm-hmm. yeah. So he, he's making over the top jokes about his own demise. And then you're spending the day thinking, God, I hope this guy doesn't kill himself because, yep. because he's the only person I can count on and I can't even count on him. Oh, this is all right. Mm-hmm. Well, very interesting. So I have one more question before we move into how this, uh, all this, what this did to you as an adult. So um, here's my last question. Catholic. Mm-hmm. No, no, uh, Lutheran. Well, so my dad was, um, I think, I guess it probably would have been Catholic because he went to a private school with, um, nuns and he was completely not religious because of that. Um, he, w- he was also kind of abused in that setting. Um, he, so he just absolutely kind of hated organized religion, mm-hmm. um, after like going to school and having corporal punishment and just really pretty awful stuff from the the nuns teachers at the school. So he, I guess he probably, that must've been a Catholic school, right? If it was nuns. Um, my mom was Lutheran and my mom um, is, continues to be and took us to church. My dad never went with us um, and I'm no longer religious, but yeah, I was raised going to church pretty often um as a kid just that that was just my mom and sisters my dad um didn't attend yeah hey listen i knew didn't believe when i was in the fourth grade i had a teacher i remember his name he's got to be dead his last name was segola he was a prick and um and uh if you weren't paying attention to his class or he didn't like what you were doing he would sneak up on you with a yardstick and smash it across your desk and mm-hmm. he wouldn't hit yep. you. I was in public school, by the way. So if I'm in fourth grade, let's do the math. I was born in 71. I would have been, what, like seven in fourth grade. So it was like, it was the late 70s. And for people, A, who don't know what a yardstick is, it's a measuring device about three feet long, uh, made out mm-hmm. of wood. And even if you still have one today, if you pick one up at the Home Depot or Lowe's, they're almost like, they're a joke. They're like press wood. But when I was a kid, they were a thick, solid piece of laminated or, or lacquered wood. Like it was a thing. Yeah. You know? And it was frightening because sometimes you'd see him coming and you'd be like, oh, God, is this for me? You, you know what I mean? And he would never yep. hit anybody. But that was public school. You weren't allowed to hit people. But he was still basically he was intimidating you. Like I look back on it now, and oh, yeah. it, it was intimidation. It 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 left you with the feeling like it could get upside down, and yep. he might hit a motherfucker. You know, you know what I mean? Like yep. like it. it, it oh, and, yeah. and that's the vibe you lived in. And I'll tell you what, he was the guy I couldn't. If I've told the story before on the show, where I I don't I didn't know um my multiplication tables until I was much older than I should have been, and mm-hmm. it started with him. Like I, yeah. I, I could not learn in his presence at all. Well, no, it, yeah, it's that whole idea. Like when you're in like fight, flight, freeze, when we're in that mode, you aren't learning. Like the only information you're taking in is like, how do I stay safe right yeah. now? You know, how do I not become, get on the other side of that, that yardstick? And yeah, it doesn't, 
it doesn't take you to actually be hit if there's the fear that you could be. Um, and that was a little bit, you know, that would be there with my dad just because he would, like I said, he was never physically abusive, but he would throw stuff or sometimes, I don't know if it was break. I guess I don't. Yeah. Yes. Like I remember one time he found my sister had, uh, I think it was the kid, was it the Kid Rock CD that on the CD was just like a middle finger pointing up. And he had, he had told her like to turn her music down. And I think she wasn't even supposed to have that CD. It might've been her friends and she had it up super loud. It was horribly graphic. And he came in and I, I remember he was yelling and he turned it off and, um, I maybe I was in there with her because I can remember it. I saw him and he just held the CD up like over his head and he just crunched it in his hand and shattered it. Um, and so I remember that, too, that like I never. My dad never hit me, but there was there was just that fear that you there was posturing, you know, the way yeah. that that his body would be and even just how kind of how out of control the yelling and things were. Right. You were just never a hundred percent sure. Um, and it's easy and to put it, take a chance. Yeah. And it's easy to put it on the individual, but the truth is, is that that teacher reminded me of my father and my father felt comfortable hitting me because I guess in his mind, yeah. he, oh, he owned me. So, um, yeah. and it's just, it's, that's what I was saying earlier. It's, it's a, it's a slice of time. And by the way, if we go back 500 years, this would be these stories would be the equivalent of like my story about falling out of the bus. I'd be like, "Oh, look how far we've come." Yes. You, you, you know, yep. so life is a is a human beings are 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 at their core aggressive violent things, right? And we've been teaching ourselves for thousands and thousands and more years to walk away from that. And and it's easy to be born in this time and say like this is what the world is, but this isn't what the world is. This is what the world's become. And you have no, you know, when you're born and you become, you know, aware of your surroundings as you get older, you just think this is how the world's always been. And the truth is, it's not always been like this and it might not always be like this. It might change for the better. It might it, it could ebb for 50 years. And get worse mm -hmm. and then come back again. Like you don't have context for the, the big picture, the real, real big picture. And so yeah. it's like, I feel like as much as we're talking about your father and his grandfather, we're just talking about society at that time, really. Oh, yeah. 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 And just it just follows the par like paradigm shifts, you know, throughout. Um, and my my goal is always just like to do to kind of see, you know, maybe your parents or your, your upbringing clearly, um, and, and then improve a little bit, you know, if it's you all you're can trying get to do. an inch, an inch better, um, which I think he absolutely did from his parents. And if I can, you know, be an inch better with my kids, which I, I think that I am certainly try to be, um, then I think that that's, that's kind of all we can do. That's, that's our best as humans. Yeah. That's my goal. Well, you know, you know, the, you know, the, the Flynn effect, the idea that, um, uh, people's IQs have been increasing over time, mm -hmm. that the IQs increase over time, even yep. in that situation, when you find yourself in a social situation and you think, 
God, that person's not figuring this out. Or, you know, my neighbor's kind of like, seems dumb sometimes or whatever. Like the, those people may just be two generations behind you on this, on this path to human beings becoming more intelligent as we, as we develop. And, and mm-hmm. it's not like your, your neighbor's not dumb. They, they're not, they're not at fault. Like they didn't do anything wrong. They literally just may have been two generational cycles where they got unlucky and some dopey people made some babies together. Like, you know what I mean? Like it's, it's not, it's, it's no one's fault. And it it just, it's it's what it is. It doesn't excuse it. If your neighbor, if your neighbor sets your fence on fire, right? Like you can, Mm -hmm. you still should and would be upset. But as a thinking person, if my if my dopey neighbor set my fence on fire, my first thought would be put the fire out. My second thought would be, well, this doesn't surprise me. You, you know, mm-hmm. now if my neighbor yeah. on the other side did it, I think, well, that must have been on purpose because that's a bright guy. He couldn't set his fence on fire by per, you know on by mistake. And and that's the same thing with this with this parenting stuff. And I only have context for it because I grew up with a guy who was like. You know, listen or else. It doesn't matter if I'm making sense. It doesn't matter if you want to do it or if I'm saying the right thing. We're going to do what I say. And if we get to the point where that falls apart, I will yell at you or hit you until you fall in line. And I'm assuming that's how he was raised. And he was probably better because I know my dad at his core. He was a sweet guy, Mm -hmm. you know, but this person that I, I, um, I told you that I talked to uh, from my from my past in this short back and forth we had. He said, you know, when we were kids, I was scared of your father. Mm-hmm. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. Like, how would he know? You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Like, he, he wasn't in my house. Like, yeah. I was scared of my dad. But why would other people have been? And I thought, oh, he could, and it, you brought it up and you made me think of it. Because he's projecting, he's projecting himself to be scary. He wants people to to cower around him. I don't know why. Mm-hmm. I don't have time to figure it all out. But that's the truth. And now we're a couple of generations yeah. beyond. So okay, I'm so sorry. This is really interesting. Do you have more time than we booked? I apologize. Yeah, yeah, oh, I okay. do. Yep. Oh, great, great. Um, so how did all how did this disaster impact you and your diabetes? When you have diabetes and use insulin, low blood sugar can happen when you don't expect it. Gvoke Hypopen is a ready-to-use glucagon option that can treat very low blood sugar in adults and kids with diabetes ages 2 and above. Find out more. Go to gvokeglucagon.com forward slash juice box. Gvoke shouldn't be used in patients with theochromocytoma or insulinoma. Visit gvokeglucagon.com slash risk. I'm going to tell you about one of the better decisions I made last year. I switched Arden's delivery of her diabetes supplies from where we were getting them to U.S. Med. And U.S. Med is more than edging out the service that we were getting from that previous company. Right from the comfort of your home or office, you can join over 1 million satisfied customers who rely on U.S. Med for courteous, knowledgeable, and trained customer care. And their representatives are going to keep you up to date with your medical and diabetic supplies all delivered right to your door. usmed.com forward slash juice box or call 
1514 to get your free benefits check right now. US Med features a litany of things that you're going to love. How about an A plus rating with the Better Business Bureau? They accept Medicare nationwide and over 800 private insurers. They carry everything from insulin pumps and diabetes testing supplies to the latest CGMs like the Freestyle Libre 3, the Dexcom G6, and a little bird told me the Dexcom G7 coming very soon. They always provide you with 90 days worth of supplies and fast and free shipping. Better service and better care is what you're going to get when you go to usmed.com forward slash juicebox. On top of all of this, US Med is now dispensing Novolog Insulin Aspart and Humalog Insulin Lispro through their pharmacy benefits. What are you waiting for? usmed.com forward slash juicebox 888-721-1514. US Med is the number one distributor for Freestyle Libre Systems nationwide. They are the number one specialty distributor for Omnipod Dash. They are the place we got Arden's Omnipod 5s from. U.S. Med provides Arden with her Dexcom supplies. And they're the number one fastest growing tandem distributor nationwide. I mean, I guess I could say it again, but are you just already online getting it done? Are you even listening to me anymore? Or have you already called 888-721-1514? Don't like the phone? USmed.com forward slash juicebox. The other day I got an email from U.S. Med and it said, are you, uh, you want some more supplies? Uh, I guess it was time, and I said yes, I clicked the button, and then they just showed up. You want to do it like that? It's pretty damn easy. usmed.com forward slash juicebox. Well, I think I've had like chapters. Um, you know, when I was when I was really young. I remember just, you know, feeling like you have to manage this on your own. I definitely remember like sneaking downstairs. I did not feel well. I knew something was off and I would sneak my insulin and meter upstairs and I'd see 450 and I'd be like, oh God. And I'd kind of guess and take a shot. And I, I knew no one knew that I was taking a shot. So there wasn't going to be anyone to check if I took too much or not. Um, and I really just have to look back at myself there and have a lot of compassion for what that would have been like for me as a kid. Cause I knew what could happen. You know, I knew that it could, that I could die, but I didn't, my dad's knowing that it was 450 and yelling was, was scarier, I guess. Yeah. At yeah. That point. Yeah, Cause you're, so I think in, well, I'm sorry, your blood sugar is the injector. Like you broke it. You did it wrong. You're going to get. Oh, yes. Yeah, right. Oh, yeah. It's coming for you mm-hmm. now. Right, right. I'm sorry. Yeah. 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 So I think during those years, my blood sugars were, you know, as okay as they could be on shots with older insulins and with a, you know, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 year old making the majority of the decisions. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, you know, my A1Cs were sevens, eights. Uh, and then I would say I was probably really burnt out in high school, um, high school and college. Uh, I would go a long time without testing my blood sugar. Um, I think sometimes I would maybe test my blood sugar like twice a, a week. Honestly, um, I took insulin. I didn't not, uh, I didn't not take insulin. Right. Um, and I guess I was just kind of 
guessing. My highest A1C ever, I'll never forget it. And it was in high school because, you know, this was also the time when they couldn't like download meters. Sure. I, you, you had to write everything down, right? And my my dad would say like two weeks before my endo appointment here, like write, go through and write all your sugars down. And I would act like I was going through the memory on my machine, but there wasn't anything in the memory on my machine. So I was just like making them up. And of course, I'd put in some highs, I'd put in some lows, like trying to make it, you know, but Seem then real. again, here's the, here's the perfectionistic part of me. So most of the numbers were pretty good. And I went to the doctor and I met and I really liked my pediatrician. And um, he said, like, I don't have any changes. It looks great. I think I was maybe like 14 at this time. And then I got a call the next day from him, the doctor. And he said, so your numbers make no sense with your A1C. And it was my highest A1C that I've ever had. I think it was like a 9.8. Mm-hmm. And he said, like, I I don't believe those were your numbers. Like, why, why are you lying? And I said that I wasn't, that was another thing like, Oh, lying in my house. If you lied. And that kind of also meant just not having boundaries. Um, you know, there are things that I now feel like that's not a lie. That's just a, that's just an okay boundary to have, but I don't need to tell you that. Um, but so I remember like crying on the phone and saying that, you know, why they, didn't match is because I really only started to test my blood sugar before my appointment and that I was being really bad at like managing it. And he said, you know, I'm not going to tell your parents this time, but you need to know that if this happens again, I will have to talk to them and you need to make these like changes and like, you know, this is your health. Um, And so again, I, I think I stepped it up a little, but not a lot. Um, it was just kind of don't die. Um, I also developed an eating disorder in, uh, high school. So, and I had a best friend who I met at diabetes camp who just happened to be in my town. We hadn't known each other before that. And she actually had, she developed like diabolemia where she, and I never did that. I never, that was too scary for me to purposefully keep my blood sugars up Mm -hmm. and not take insulin to lose weight. Um, I was just more standard, standard bulimia. Um, but so I don't really know how that affected it. And then I would say after college, I checked back in, but I was told for years and years, Scott, that I was a brittle diabetic and God, I believed it. Mm-hmm. I was going from 300 to 30, 300 to 30, over four times over. a day. Yeah. And they would just, you know, there's nothing we can do. You're, you're really doing a good job managing what you can. And it, your podcast was like life changing for me. And I, I started, I'd say I started listening to it probably like two years ago. Um, and I've had the best A1Cs that I've ever had. And it, it really happened very quickly. Oh, that's terrific. Um, yeah. So I, I would say before that, my A1Cs were very regularly like, oh, 7.8 to 8.2. Um, and now my most recent one was um, was a 6.0. Yeah. So, so you would yeah. say that basically a generational concept of how to raise people 
put you in a position where you weren't comfortable being honest about what was going on because of fear of retribution somehow. And then that translated into your medical life as well. And so, you, yeah, yeah, right. So like, you, you're you not going to tell the doctor what's really going on. Maybe you're not afraid of the doctor, but you're definitely afraid of it getting back to your parents. Do you think the doctor knew when he said, I won't tell your parents this time? Do you think he knew that you'd be in trouble in a way that he didn't want to have happen to you? Or do you think he was trying to do the thing where he was like, well, I'll befriend this person a little bit, make them feel like I'm on their side. Maybe I can get them to do what I, what would be good for them. Yeah. I think it was probably a little bit of both. Mm -hmm. I, I don't think he would have had in any indication from, you know, he knew my dad, my dad was came to all the appointments and I, Again, if you didn't if you didn't live in my house, wouldn't have known. You would not know this. I, I had a conversation not that long ago with that friend I was talking about, and you know I've moved away from my home state, and so I don't live near her anymore. And we just catch up from time to time. And I didn't really realize it, but I kind of opened up to the about this stuff to her for the first time, and she was just shocked. She wow. was like, "I cannot believe that that was like what it was like. Like my parents." would be like, why can't you be more like, like you? Her yeah, her yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I, you know, he is a very, you know, funny, charming, like likable guy, but I do wonder if he could tell from my reaction. I just don't know if he knew if oh. it was justified fear or not, or if that was just me having anxiety but or you being perfectionistic. Afraid. You looked afraid. Okay. But he probably, I mean, I, I do think he could tell that. I don't know if he knew that my, parents would react bad but at least i thought they would mm -hmm. and so he was like okay this one time as long as you promise me you're going to do this i'm not going to involve them um but know that if you don't you know get it under control or change it i will have to i felt happy for you and kind of proud of you when you said you don't live in that state anymore it's a big thing for a person who grew it's... up the way you uh the, the way you did to move yep. away that's a big deal yep. for you I, yeah, I am the only one who doesn't. And I live close enough where, you know, I can, I can drive home, but it's like a six hour drive. Mm. And so I do it, you know, a, a couple times a year and everyone else in my family still lives there. And I can just say that, um, I am a much healthier person having the space. And it is interesting every time I go home, just seeing, um, I, I am, much I'm more of like an outsider now um, because I have kind of I've grown and I would just say that my sisters um, and parents have stayed very much in a very similar dynamic the the gravity of those situations is so heavy and it it draws people in and they just can't break away from it right it just it and the codependence that happens and the unhealthy behaviors that that feed each other and how yeah. how people in the family take on um you know roles like you, you know oh you're the person like you're the person in the family we can all pity and you're the person in the family we oh, can yeah. shit on and you're the person yeah. in the family that seems like they're in charge and mom and dad are somehow treated like you know i don't know like the Pope and his assistant, like, even though we all know they're not. And it's, yep. uh, it's really interesting. It happens. 
I mean, everyone listening who has something like this going on recognizes that in their family. Like this Mm -hmm. just disaster that everything is that everyone pretends is normal and okay. And then when they kind of can get away from each other a little bit for five minutes and all of the pressure to act the way you think you're supposed to act and do the things you think you're supposed to do, as soon as you get away from it for a little bit, you can look and say, oh, that's that's insane. Like, I, sh- I shouldn't be near that. And then some people have the ability to break away from it and some don't. Yeah. yeah. And then even when you're away from it for a long time, if if you're not real careful, you know, in our case, we're a family of five. If four people, you know, you go home for Thanksgiving or Christmas and four people are still playing those same roles. Yeah. If you're not real aware of it, um, it, you know, they, they will, I think very subconsciously, but kind of do everything to pull you back in that role. Oh yeah. And yeah. Like that's definitely me. something I'm always mindful of. And there's times where I'm like, Oh yeah, I totally fell back in the role of being like the sick one that everyone can, you know, kind of feel bad for, but yet at the same time blame. And it must be your fault that this is happening. Um, Do you think, and good, I'm sorry, keep going. I I just don't want to lose my thought. uh, Yeah, no, I I would just that I can. And then there are times where I feel like you did a really good job. Not, you know, this was a time where you could have like you, you felt like you should say this, but you didn't. And you like stayed a little bit more true to who you are and want to be today. And, Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's just, it's, it's crazy how quick that stuff can come back to. Do you think that everyone's family, it like, it's a spectrum? Like, is there an amount of this, not maybe, maybe not the, um, the abusive stuff, but like, is there an amount of crazy in every family? It's just that at some level, it's just expected because it's human interaction and, and family dynamic and stuff like that. And then the alcoholism and the anger and the, the aggressive stuff just kind of pushes it to another level like or do you think that somewhere Mm -hmm. right now like the like i don't know wally and the beaver and their parents and they they exist somewhere or do you think that doesn't exist yeah no i i think there's i think there is a level of dysfunction in every family and i think that's just because i think every human has i always tell my clients we can all be awesome and we can all be assholes like Mm -hmm. throughout our day to day. And so I, I think that there's a level of dysfunction, but I agree there's absolutely a spectrum and obviously like abuse is, is on the more extreme intense end of that, of the spectrum. But um, yeah, I think, I think that there's a level of dysfunction. That's why I think like everyone can benefit from therapy at some point. I don't think there's any sort of like shame in going to therapy or, I think it's part of kind of like seeing seeing things clearly. Mm-hmm. It's a weird balance, right? Because aggression. I mean, there's a time in history where if you weren't an aggressive person, you weren't gonna you weren't gonna make it. You, you yeah. know, and so that's built into you. And now you could say, in certain parts of the world, you don't need to be aggressive to make it. But there's still places where it matters. Like I joke about it when I talk about the podcast and I say like the podcast is, is really, it's very successful and very popular, mm-hmm. but it's that way you can, there's, there's probably a number of reasons and I'm sure that people who are helped by it would think, Oh, the content's great or Scott, you deliver it well or anything like that. But, and I'm, and that's not, not, not true. But part of the reason why it's successful is because I'm incredibly, 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 I want to win. I am very competitive. 
And so I know yeah. I have a thing. Like if I was the coach of a of the worst football team in the NFL, I'd still want to win, but I'd understand if we lost. But if I was the coach of the best team and we didn't win, it would make me crazy. And like I know sure. and I know this podcast is the is the best team in the NFL. And so I go out there with it every day with the intention of playing perfect football, running up the score and making everybody else around me know that you can come and play with me if you want, but you're not going to win. And like like yeah. that that feeling is probably it's probably the aggression that my father pushed at me, like be strong, don't back down, like that kind of stuff. I've probably just translated it into a modern world and I'm using it in a modern world. And when I was younger, I can see where I would have just done what my dad did. Like I could see where I could have been like a yeller. And I did for a little while when my kids were really young. It was my first inclination. And like I said, Kelly's the one that was like, this isn't what we're doing. And I was like, and it took me a little bit, but I was like, okay, it makes sense. But like the last time I raised my voice, I I can't even remember when it was now. Yeah, I'm the same way. And and for me, my inclination has never been to yell. And, And I kind of have always told like, people like partners or people I'm with, I can't, I cannot do yelling and I cannot do swearing at me, at people. Like those are things that I will, um, I guess if I was being right, it's probably technically like a trauma response, but I just won't, I can't deal with it. I won't put myself back in that situation. Um, and so, you know, and that's what common, like when you, you know, have had some abuse, there's, there's generally like kind of two, you either will recreate it. And, and that's not of any like fault of anyone's either. This is just, I think the human response, but you either, this is what you've learned. And so you unintentionally, even maybe, you know, you're doing it and you hate it, you recreate it. Um, or I think sometimes people can, you know, somehow do the opposite. And I don't know what makes you one or the other of that in that group. Yeah. But there is something like I don't I really don't think and that I have yelled at now they are not my biological kids either, but they're here fifty percent of the time and I've been in their life since they were really, really young. So mm-hmm. but we're very close. I'm very involved. But um yeah, I just don't I don't yell. But I remember that being just such a thing in my house that I hated Yeah. that I think in some way it clicked that like, I, I, I don't even function well. If, even if I'm the one who's yelling, I don't think I would function well in that house. It's interesting. I'm thankful that that isn't a natural inclination um, of of mine. Yeah. You'd probably make yourself upset. Seriously. You'd, you'd probably be doing something uncontrollably and making yourself upset on top of it. It's funny. I have two younger brothers. And we all grew up in this. Well, I grew up, I I probably got the most of it. And then my father left when I was 13, which made my one brother eight, my other brother three. And then I basically raised them, you know, because my mom went to work. And like my middle brother is, he's very um, emotional, kind of, and and reserved. And so if he gets upset, he kind of keeps it to himself. Um. And my younger brother is does the like, hey, listen, if this is going wrong, like screw it. Like just like he'll walk away from it kind of thing. Like, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like he won't get involved. And I don't know how it makes him feel. I was the one who fought back. But I think yeah. I think I fought back because A, I'm adopted. So my I think the way I think is different than the way that my family thinks. 
but I also felt protective of my mom, who was clearly oh, sca- yeah. she was clearly scared, and my yep. brother and my brothers. Like I felt con- yep. like I, it, you almost start acting like a human shield. Like oh, for sure. I think that's really common with oldest, like that would be an oldest sibling trait right, in like, an abusive. And my oldest sister was the same way. I She would, like, I remember both me and my other sister would be saying to my sister, stop, stop, just don't say anything else. Stop talking to him. I, I remember one time I, she, she got up from the table. She threw a piece of pizza at him and he, like uh, threw his chair back and was like going after real fast again there. He didn't like make contact with her, but I was just in disbelief that she did that. And I'm, I'm sure he was being really mean to her Mm -hmm. at the table, but she was that say she kind of had to have the last word. Um, She would, you know, jump in there and, and say things that I'm just sitting there going, it's true, but you're making him so much more angry. Shut up. Stop saying that. Stop doing that. But I think that was the same thing. It was her way of taking on the intensity of, you know, maybe protecting us. And then I think there's also that trait when you're an oldest, you're kind of in some ways parentified and you're used to telling other people what to do. So Mm -hmm. you have that like uh, sometimes more of a little bit of like a know-it-all. It, it, you know, part of you. I tell you, for me, it also, I, it, I started seeing, I was like, I'm making more sense than they are. You, you know yes. what I mean? And yep. so maybe yep. I should be, maybe I should be like running the thing yeah. here. Um, and it is a little like in that movie too, where there's 10 people in a room and they've got to get away and they're all going to die. And one guy's like, I'll run in the other direction and wave my hands over my head. They'll shoot me. You guys mm-hmm. can get away. Like, it feels like that sometimes too. Like you look over at people yeah. and you're like, Listen, this is a mess. It isn't going to get any better. At least if there's going to be shooting, maybe I can concentrate it over here on myself and and save everybody else from it. But I don't think I mm-hmm. saved everybody else from it. I just in that moment I might have, but I wasn't with them constantly. I'm sure they got it. Oh yeah, you know? there's there's no way that you could have, you know. And and that's also kind of a burden of the oldest is I think they feel like they they should maybe be able to do that or want to do that and even if you're there all the time, you can't, you can't shield all of that, yeah. you know? Um, so yeah, I think, I think too, just like going back to, you said like, what is, how has it affected me? I think the chapter I'm in now is just trying to figure out how to, um, how to include people around me because I think I still feel very alone with my diabetes, but it, mm-hmm this point i think that's pretty self inflicted um at least with my my current people like my my boyfriend and his kids my, it's not self inflicted with my parents that's still very much uh i remember when dexcom like share came out i had just mentioned to them when i was home like if you guys ever wanted like you could see my blood sugars and i i hear people on here talk about like adults who have people following their blood sugars mm-hmm. And that was such a foreign concept to me. And when I brought it up to my parents, they both instantly looked like a deer in headlights and were like, oh, no, oh, no, nope, we want nothing to do with that. You're standing um, there as an adult, basically like a little kid going, hey, if you want to prove that you love me, yeah, you could. Yep. And they're yep. like, it no, 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 thank you. <laughs> yep. It definitely reinforced like, OK, so you don't even want to be on there in case, you know, I'm in another state and you can see that my blood sugar's 30 and I haven't responded or done anything. And it stayed that way for 
um, a long time, you know, good to know. Um, but like, I need to figure out too, how to, I just don't even know where to start. Like I, I also have pretty significant sleep apnea and we've gone through these many treatments and things have not worked for various reasons. And so I'm very possibly going to have a surgery where they like move my jaw forward because my airway is very small. It's like 20% of what it's supposed to be. And this surgery, it would be a really big deal with recovery. It would be like six weeks on a liquid food diet. And I, you know, I've listened to your episodes and Jenny's episodes about like being in the hospital and dear Lord, do I have some like ER hospital experiences. I do not want to hand my diabetes over to the doctors, Mm -hmm. but I'm also painfully aware that there is absolutely not, there's no one in my life that would have the first clue with how to, how to take my diabetes over for a day or two or three. Um, None of, none of them would know how to work my pump or how, you know, what I would need. And again, some of that is, was just the dynamic of my family of origin. And now it's like, I don't e- I wouldn't even know where to start mm-hmm. on how to like, you know, really let my boyfriend in on it. Um, or, and we've kind of tried a couple times and then he'll, he just too is like, I don't, it's, it's overwhelming. And I'm, I'm probably not explaining it in the best way. Cause I don't have a lot of practice doing that, but yeah. I always just end up having that same reaction of, you know what, it's just easier if you do it. Mm. Um, but I don't know what that would look like. And that makes me nervous of like, all right, what, what are those first five days going to, going to look like? Yeah. But you're basically just going to, they're going to leave your blood sugar in the two or three hundreds in the hospital and just kind of keep you alive long enough. I mean, that's a, seems like, seems like a really serious surgery. Um, I mean, if you've gotten, yeah, to, it if is. You've I mean, to that they have point, to, yeah, they have to, you know, your, your top jaw is attached to your skull. So if they're moving that forward, they're like cutting that off and reattaching with hardware. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so if you're thinking of doing thing. that, it sounds like you've tried a number of other things already to avoid. Oh that. yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I've tried, tried everything. And again, that's, that's to those, like these kind of weird symptoms that follow me around. Like I've been just tired since day one, like of probably high school, I could have slept anytime, anywhere. I always get my thyroid checked. I've listened to your episodes on that too. And I really don't know. They all, everything always looks normal, but I know that doesn't necessarily mean that it is either. So that's the other fear is, you know, maybe part of it isn't the sleep apnea. And what if I go through all of that and it doesn't fix well, that? Well, tell what me, if I'm still tired. Do you know what your TSH is? Um, I, I like not off the top of my head, but I know it got, it's been tested and it's, they tell you it's in range quote unquote within range. Yeah, don't, yeah. don't do that. Go find out what it yeah. is. And if it's over two, tell them you want to be treated for your thyroid symptoms. That's it. Um, like, I don't. Okay. I don't T- care if your TSH. TSH if it's over two. Yeah, if it's over like two, two point one, right in there. Then tell them, look, I have a lot of thyroid issues, and because what I'm guessing is your thyroid's going to come back at like the TSH will be like four or five or something like that, and they're going to say, oh, that's in range, but it's not. You need it under two to get rid of your symptoms, which, by the way, could also be your joint pain. 
Yeah. Seriously. Like that's a simple thing to check on first and a good way to get the doctor to kind of help you if they, they're like, well, we don't treat, you know, we don't treat thyroid if it's not blah, 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 whatever they're going to say. Yeah. Say, look, I have a lot of here. I have a lot of thyroid issues. My TSH is over two. I've heard from a lot of people who, you know, manage their thyroid well that, you know, two or under is what you're shooting for without getting hyper. And so what's it going to hurt to give me some of this medication and see if my issues clear up? I guarantee you, if you're, if you're over two, that, that, that's going to help you. Okay. Yeah. So I just found it. It's one, it's 1.01. Yeah. See, that's good. So that's pretty good. That's good. So maybe then the RA, maybe you have RA and that's part of like you're sleeping, like maybe you're not sleeping well. Yeah. And, and the, oh, I'm uh, not. I'm not yeah. sleeping well. When I I've done four sleep studies this year, um, and when I'm untreated, like I I did an untreated one, and I I think my I woke up. I had these like awakenings, like uh, forty two times an hour, and I never hit REM sleep once. That I had zero percent REM sleep in like the seven hours I was asleep. Hmm. So. And then, you know, we have the different treatments, but that, that is the other thing is I do, I feel like I've had a lot of other just like health issues. And that is something I feel like kind of insecure about and have struggled. And again, have this urge to ask for help, but at the same time, have an urge to hide that because it means there's something wrong with me or I've done something wrong. Yeah. So it's just created that, that kind of double bind. What happens to you when you have that thought? as a human being, but then you're also a therapist and you recognize Mm -hmm. that that thought is not real. Like, what would you Mm -hmm. tell, what would you tell a patient if they said that to you? Yeah, well, I, I'm, so I specialize in a therapy called uh, DBT, dialectical behavior therapy. Um, And there's like, there's the deeper work and individual, and then there's this whole set of skills and I, it's like a lifestyle and I use it all the time too. Um, the skill would technically be called opposite action. Like, and I, it happens to me all the time where I'm aware, like I have my thoughts, I kind of check them around facts. Do they fit the facts <clears throat> or are they effective? Cause sometimes your thought fits the facts, but it still is not, it's not an effective thing to meet your goal or to meet your needs. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you have to, you know, you challenge that both behaviorally and cognitively. So when I notice myself doing that, I very much try to like reach out and ask for for help um, while also like validating those insecure thoughts and knowing it's oh it's okay that yeah. you need help. And like I think I do have a lot of other health stuff. My body is constantly fighting to be in equilibrium where a lot of people's bodies are just there naturally. Yeah. That has to have some some lasting, you know, effects. Uh, and so, you know, just kind of validating that, but just like any human, sometimes you know what you should do and you're not always successful following, yeah. following through, well, you no, know, for so sure. I mean, there's, that's there's... not to say I have a hundred percent success rate, but that's, <laughs> but, that's the goal. Yeah. What I try to do. Yeah. There, there's the truth of the matter and what you're able to accomplish. I mean, you know, if everybody could just take the truth of the matter and march forward with it, then we'd all, you know, be at the right, you know, body mass index and we'd all be getting the right amount of exercise and nobody would eat a Dorito and like, you know, the whole thing. So, (laughs) but it must be a little more frustrating when it's within your professional realm to have a thought that you know to yourself, you could say, this is not a real thought. I shouldn't be doing like this is a, this is a, a fragment, a leftover 
thing from how I was raised or something I experienced. And if I could just drop it on the floor and leave it there, I'd leap forward. Like it must be different to experience it and know it and not be able to do it than Mm -hmm. it is for the regular, like a layman to experience it, not know what's happening and just think this is life. Sure. Yeah. I think, I think that's definitely true. Sometimes I, I also think that because I've done my own therapy and I'm, I'm a therapist that I also kind of am, am, you know, a little bit, maybe I try to be more skilled in like also just like self-compassion and kind of accepting, accepting my humanity and flaws. And so you're totally right. I have absolutely had the thought of frustrating, like, you know what to do, but you can, why aren't you just doing it? But I would, I would also say that there's just also an awareness of like that it's okay. And, and telling yourself that or being frustrated or beating yourself down is you just kind of more tapping into your, mom or dad's voice of telling you you screwed up again and that's not going to help like you didn't screw up you're human and you're not going to you're not going to be perfect like stop even chasing that you're setting yourself up for failure here it's so crazy how how differently you can put people in the same situation and how differently they come out of it i mean like i'm not i'm not, i'm nowhere near perfect And I'm sure I have impacts from how I was raised that are not healthy for me. But overall, I do think that part of it turned me into a fighter. And, Mm -hmm. and, and how do you get lucky like that? How do you get turned into a fighter instead of a person who cowers or like, yeah. yeah, you know, it's just, it seems so random. It's not, it's nothing like I did on purpose for certain. It's just my natural responses. Like, I don't know if you've ever, I've told this story on the podcast before where, um, and my dad just wanted me to agree with him about something, like sort of your sister in the pizza. Oh, yep. Yeah. Yes. All right. Yep. And I just I remember, yep. And I didn't give in. And to the point where I was like, oh, I'm going to take a beating here, but I'm still yep. right. Like, like, why would I just not do what your sister, like what you, you were telling your sister, like, just stop. Like, why didn't I just look at him mm-hmm. and go, hey, you know what, man? <laughs> I thought it over and you're 100% right. Like, that seems to be yep. what you want to hear right now. So, like, let me give it to you. And and there are also people who would have fought back like I did, but then turned into their father. Like, yeah. like it's just it's all so much dumb luck. If I don't meet Kelly, if like things don't yeah. happen, if I'm not able to kind of like elevate my job situation as I go on, like I could easily be a guy working in a she I, I, I don't know if I've if yeah. people really pay attention. I mean, I talk a lot, so it's hard to it's hard to remember everything. But um it's Kelly recognizing who I was beyond my circumstances that really that really saved my life yeah yeah and I don't think I can say I can't say the the exact same for my partner especially like I just he we didn't meet until a little until later Mm -hmm. but my partner is also a therapist and so he's certainly like I did a ton of therapy in college um that was kind of after like the peak of my eating disorder. And that really just, I had to kind of get through that. And that interestingly is that really is mom stuff, not dad stuff. We won't even go into that, but (laughs) that's a whole nother thing. But he, I mean, I, yes, we will, he can kind of speak that language with me and, and, you know, again, just help to kind of, it's not about blaming or, but just seeing things kind of clearly. Okay. When you're, mom or dad does this, that makes you feel like you should do this, but 
how, how does that line up for you? Do you want to do that or not? Did your mom call you fat or did she infer that you didn't want to be or like? Oh, uh, yeah. No, my mom, uh, my mom. Uh, so I was diagnosed, you know, in second grade and I was real thin because I had probably been high for a very long time. Mm-hmm. And if you, the, well, again, this is another adult moment that I look back and I'm like, dear Lord. Uh, I remember it was about third grade when my mom told me that we needed to watch what I ate because I had gained a lot of weight because I was on insulin and my blood sugar. One, I wasn't high, you know, so I, I'm sure some of it was just normal. And also I was kind of having to snack a lot because we were trying to figure out and I, I went low like all the time at right. school. And in my mind, up until a couple of years ago, on one of our books is the picture of me from second grade when I fainted and then my third grade picture. And in my mind, in third grade, I am obese. Looking at the picture now, after like a several year break, I am a normal kid. Like I am by no means obese, yeah. but in, in my mind, I was, I am, I am significantly again, my, if other people around me would know, and they'd probably, they would challenge the significantly, but like, I am, am bigger than my mom or my sisters by quite a bit. Um, and that they've, I would say all had eating stuff. Uh, and yeah, that, that was a very common thread was just talking about my weight, uh, you know, what I'm eating. Do I need that? You know, maybe it's because of the diabetes, but it it was very focused on what, what you look like. And I never, um, I was always very pretty, obviously the one missing, mm-hmm. missing the mark. I'll tell uh, you, you've painted, you've painted a picture today of, a, of humanity that doesn't really deserve to exist. <laughs> I know. And the thing is, is I love my family. And I know, like, right? It's the worst you, part. <laughs> you know, met them and came in, you would, they have wonderful qualities too. And, yeah. and that was stuff put on my mom by her mom. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I'm very aware of that because I got it from that grandma too, but we didn't live very close to that grandma. Yeah. But that grandma would openly, you know, if you went in to get a cookie, she would say are you should do you really think you need that or are you supposed to be eating that mm-hmm. well, listen, <laughs> so that came you know here's the path as far as i'm concerned the average <laughs> iq in in, in society has got to go up to about 110 maybe 115 once that happens and we can burn out two generations of terrible people i think we're going to be on our way i think maybe maybe just uh, another yeah. 150 years <laughs> if, if technology and and social media doesn't take us down first, I can <laughs> I, think, I can get with you on that. Yeah, I but think that's where I we're think headed. There's that's a question that I don't I don't know if we know what factor that has to play yet. It's gonna it's gonna backfire, and I'll tell you why yeah. I know. I and I've said this in the podcast before. I'm not embarrassed to say this. Um, I, in a very short amount of time, social media has what's the word I'm looking for has dulled me to sexuality. Like when mm-hmm. I was, like, oh, he, yeah. here's what I mean by that. It, when I was 15, if any girl, I don't even care if I would have found her attractive or not, like she's in my personal preference or not would have stood and made a video in a t-shirt without a bra bouncing up and down and showed it to me. I would have been yeah. like, the world is a perfect place. I and this video are going to go off and live happily together now. This will be enough for me. <laughs> and and in, yeah. and instead, 
it's so pervasive at this point. I, it, it's interesting. It's having the opposite effect. I, I'm not looking at women in the sexual way that I used to all the time. Like they, it, it's mm-hmm. been put in my face so much. I don't care about it. Yeah, you're like desensitized. I to am it. desensitized Absolutely. to it at all. Like something yep. that, like something that would have just made me in the past be like, oh my god, how have I been so lucky to be in the presence of this situation? Now I just I I see it, and I'm it's not constant, but like when I see it, I'm like, I don't even care. You ruined boobs for me, is how it feels. Yeah, but but um, but yeah, it, but at at the same time, I think the double bind in that is that like having so much social media for many, many people has also fueled this like extreme seeking of and need for external validation. Mm -hmm. But yet you're describing what I think is very true that a lot of people like you can't, you, we keep having to up the ante to even get any validation because people are desensitizing to it, but we're also like seeking it and feeling like we're not okay unless you have enough likes or, you know, gone viral or whatever else or or use filters to make sure our pictures are you know only putting off that this certain version of ourself and so i think it's it's hard because there's so much of it that you're you're probably not going to get a lot of it or if you get it it doesn't have much of an impact anymore Mm -hmm. but yet it's kind of like a a drug that first high everybody's still or not everybody like I, I don't even that, really huh? have social media yeah, yeah. but a lot of people want it they chase it and right. can't really get it you well, know I'm, I'm i'm gonna tell you for the 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 life of me what i really believe is this is a positive thing but it's gonna take so long i'm not gonna see it but but what i mean is i think somehow this is going to level men and women out like you know how we're always you know i mean listen i don't think yes. this is like like right like objectifying women and like that kind of yep. stuff i think it's going to level it out i think there's going to be another generation of men that comes along that's like yeah i i saw that i'm good like do you know what i mean like and they're and they're not going to get as like as excited as like a 1983 scott would have been we're just like wow what have i done like like am i being that would be amazing and i hope that you are right i don't i don't know if you are or if we're just going to keep seeking to then up the ante um but i i mean that's a very positive outlook on it and i might try to adopt it yes that would be amazing it's a longer look than i'm not going to live long enough to say it but Yeah, yeah i also don't believe I don't believe that every little girl is going to grow up to be on OnlyFans one day. Like, like yes. I don't, I don't no. think yeah. that either. And and it's tough because right now there are some like bombastic stories of there's that girl from the Doctor Phil show. I don't know her name, but do you remember she was on Doc? She became very famous on Doctor Phil for like snapping back at somebody in the audience and saying like meet me outside or something like that. What was what did she say? Do you want to? Jeez, I have no idea. Okay, I don't. Somebody, I'm going to figure this out. <laughs> uh, so I think she's on Dr. Phil, if I'm not mistaken. Somebody in the audience, like her mom's trying to get, she's out of control. Her mom's, I, meanwhile, if you're on Dr. Phil, we're all out of control. But like, you know, she's she's out of control. And I guess somebody in the audience pushes back at her. And she stands up and basically, um, in the vernacular of when I was growing up, offers her out. Decide, says to her, why don't we go outside and fight? Right. And she uses okay, and she yeah. uses a term. I don't know what it was. Meet me outside or something. And it becomes incredibly like in the zeitgeist. 
and she becomes famous for it to the point where I think she made a song. Like some producer, like, you know, came in and was mm-hmm. like, like, let's use your sound clip, make a song of it. Well, now she's, I don't know what she's doing. I've never, I want to be clear, I've never seen OnlyFans, but I, she's on OnlyFans doing something sexual. I don't know to what level, but there are reports that, uh, reports from her, like she just brought out her receipts, basically. She made $52 million doing it. And that wow. makes, that can take some people and go, well, geez, for $52 million, like, I guess I'd do it too. Like, and people start thinking yeah. that way. But I do believe that most people wouldn't. And I don't, and, and by the way, I don't think that, like, I'm not coming down on those people. I, I don't even think I, you know, there's, I think there are people who need pornography and, and, and there are people who want to, to produce it. And I don't care what people do. I mean, if you've listened this long enough, I don't care what you do. You should do whatever you want to do. Um, but, yeah. but I do think that like on that other level where we're talking about, like, it's just desensitized is the right word. Like you, you just, you're, you're going to use this thing so many times. It's not going to have its power anymore. Mm-hmm. And, and I don't know if that doesn't take us in a better direction or not. I'm interested. You know, mm-hmm. I wish I could yeah. live another hundred years. I'd like to find out if, you know, <laughs> yeah. if young boys just one day will be like, yeah, I don't, I don't, it's okay. Like, I mean, I love you and I think you're pretty and all. And, and, you know, in our personal life, that's lovely, but I don't, I don't need this from everybody anymore. I don't, or maybe I'm just old. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, I have no idea. Like maybe I, maybe I aged past um, my sexual awakening. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, no, I, I definitely think there's something to it. I just don't, I don't know about the outcome, but because I don't know, as I said, I, I will maybe choose to go down your, your positive route because <laughs> I don't know what the outcome will be. And, and that would be great if it did, um, did even half of that. Uh, and, and I have to, um, uh, uh, just say apparently it was catch me outside. She goes, catch me outside. How about that? Like that. Uh, and and it, do you remember that? No, no, I don't. Okay. I'm but. now learning more. She's now goes by the name bad baby, but it's B H A D B H A B I E. She's the, oh, ca- she's sure. the cash me, cash me outside girl. She's been in rehab already uh, for different substance abuses. Um, and then there's this thing from very recently where she put out, uh, she, you know, she was part of an article somewhere and she said, I made $50 million and please don't call me the cash me outside girl. Um, like, so she's not even 20 years old yet. Wow. And, and she yeah. has $52 million or whatever from, mm-hmm. I'm assuming, I don't know what, but I don't think people run to give you money if you're, if you're dressed and on the internet on OnlyFans. Yeah. So. I don't, I honestly don't really know yeah. how OnlyFans works. Oh, I I think it's obviously certainly can. Yeah. You can do it anything you want with it, but I think that what brings in the money. It's yeah, yeah, it's used (laughs) as private porn, basically. Like there's a person you are you you probably attach your credit card to it and pay them something monthly and it gives you access to a page that other people can't get to. So um but the point is, I don't know. I don't know what the point is. We're so far away from it now. Here's the point. (laughs) Here's the point. Everybody's a mess on some level. Yes. <laughs> and yes. and and the real goal is like for you t- tell me again you're 33. Yeah. You have plenty of time to leave this behind you still. Do you think you mm-hmm. can? Um probably I 
I don't know how to answer that. Uh, do I think I can leave it 100% behind me? Probably not. Um, I, I just think that change is really hard for humans, you know, and I, I think even in therapy, like it takes a long time. If you, if you think that where I am now or, or some of these damages or whatever hurts, you know, took 25 years to create, why would I ever expect in a year to turn, to flip it all over? But do I think I can, you know, decrease it or leave, you know, 50, 60, maybe even 70% behind? Yeah. And that's the goal. Yeah. I also don't, I don't, you know, I don't want it to be necessarily like gone, gone. Cause it's also a big part of who I am. Mm-hmm. You know, I think part of like knowing about, as you said, like your mess or, or having some of that with you um, is kind of formative, but you certainly want to be more in control of it than it is of you, you know, or, or you're just following it by default. Um, Versus like, you know, carrying it with you so that you can use it for perspective as needed, but also you can not follow it when that's not going to serve you well, you know, yeah, I leave it behind when that's helpful. I take your point, like maybe like you don't want to forget who you are, how you got to where you are, because there's a lot, so much about you that's obviously really positive and, and valuable and, and it's who you are on top of all that. But mm-hmm. But you don't want to, maybe I shouldn't have said left it behind, but maybe like not be burdened by it as much. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Or like controlled by it or not even aware that I'm doing, you know, playing into the same patterns or whatnot. Like absolutely that, that I want to, I think I already have and and definitely plan to continue to work on just being able to like notice it's there and, you know, um, manage it as effectively as as possible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, that's, I guess that's the goal. So do you see a therapist? I assume that's not your husband, right? Or no, your boyfriend, yeah. And I, I don't, me. yeah, boyfriend. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I don't, um, I don't see a therapist right now. Um, mm-hmm. but I, I have at many different, you know, well, not many, like, I guess I've probably gone to therapy for, oh, two years, maybe three different times, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and some of that more like spaced out than others. And it wasn't always like weekly, but I, mm-hmm. yeah, I'm a very firm, I think literally everyone, whether you have a clinical diagnosis or not, it's, it's kind of just about getting to know yourself and yeah. your family, what drives you make sure you're, you're, you know, doing stuff for you and not, not other people. Um, I think that's one of the biggest things is when we, we're not even necessarily sure if we're kind of living for our own values or if that's what we think our values should be mm-hmm. because mom or dad said that thought that was really important or society does or whatever, I have, you know? So I don't, I don't even think it always has to be to solve issues, but it can just be about like self-reflection and, and awareness. I've always, I've often thought that being adopted helped me because as a young person, like a really young person, I recognized enough difference between me and my family that I thought like, oh, like they believe things because they believe them. I don't have yeah. to, I don't have to believe that if I don't want to. Yeah. And, and yeah, it, that, it was really nice. I mean, I can't believe I'm yeah. saying this. It was great not having parents that I felt like, like that thing I explained earlier, like this is the world and this is how it goes because this is where I was plopped down when I became conscious. And so, yeah. and, and that's all we all do. Like it's, you know, yeah. I mean, people make the comment that the, 
the point all the time and nobody can understand it. But I mean, if you take a baby born to a racist family and pick it up and drop it in a family who's got no racism in it at all, you're going to raise a baby that's not racist. Like for, you know what I mean? For the most part, you're going to have that opportunity. Um, you yeah. are, you are largely, you know, people say, is it nature or nurture? Well, it's both. Your wiring works in a certain way and you're being nurtured in that direction as well. If you take me out of it and at least I'm not being nurtured in that direction, then maybe my wiring's got a chance to, to see what it thinks makes sense. It's the, you know, I, I've said this before, but as I was growing up in my teens and my early twenties, I would look at the people around me and and not not like idolize them or mimic them, but like there was a, an older man that I worked with and he had this certain way about him. And I always used to think like he's a kind guy. That's good. Like like that that's a that's a thing worth thinking about adding to myself. And then there was a guy who had a great sense of humor, but he wasn't as crass as I was. And and I thought, okay, like see, he's still funny, but it's not it's not over the top. And there were hardworking guys that I worked with and there were nurturing people that I worked with. And I was almost able to kind of like, like, because in the end, your parents are just like the grocery store of ideas and you shop from it, right? You go like, I like the way my mom does this. I'm a, when I feel that way, I might lean into that a little bit. I don't like the way my dad does this. So when I feel myself going that way, I'm going to try not to lean into it. I just used a bigger grocery store. I, I wasn't stuck with two people. Not that, by the way, I didn't take things from my parents who raised me, too. There's, you know, like a, a lot of great about them. But I just had more opportunities. And I'm sure people do that with, like, family, friends, and, you know, parents of their friends and stuff like that. But I was doing it consciously. Like, I remember doing it consciously. Yeah. That's all. Yeah, well, and I think the other piece is you have to know that, like, you have permission to not buy the whole grocery store. <laughs> you know, yeah, like, you don't I, have to take it all. I, yeah. I remember someone said my one of, I think it was my therapist in college that said, like, so here's here's the deal. Like, we all, all of our parents give us some good stuff and they give us some bad stuff. And you get to decide what you want to continue to, like, believe in or carry with you or yeah. not. Yeah, just to and, have that autonomy to, to say, I don't believe in that yes. part. Yeah. Yeah. And at that time, you know, I think that was pretty new to me. Like, oh, I don't have to think that what I look like is the main source of my value that's that cannot be right that's insane mm -hmm. i don't know that's not and of course now thank goodness i've like really embraced that but yeah. at the time that was you know way outside the box so mm -hmm. I, I think you have to have you know the, the permission or awareness to do that too it's interesting about what you said and i can totally see that about your adoption i've sometimes felt that way with my diabetes as much as i um, you know, sometimes hate it and wish I didn't have it. I I think that one of the reasons I've been able to get a little bit more distance from my family is probably because of the diabetes, because in some ways I was kind of like a burden and they didn't have the tools to deal with it in a super effective way. It created a little, it created more distance and they, they didn't deal with me as much. Yeah, And so I didn't get as much. I definitely got stuff and I, and I got some stuff that my sisters didn't get, but I've, I've wondered a lot. And I, de I definitely think there is something too, that it created some space where there was enough that they didn't really want to have to deal with that, that 
they I didn't get as much of of some of that stuff. Yeah. Um, oh, I take you know, your I've, point. I've yeah. watched my I've watched my sisters, you know, struggle more in in other ways. It's interesting. My my oldest sister who would fight back and got the most years with my dad, you know, not being sober and just hated and would be so openly, you know, critical of his drinking has a, a horrible substance use um, addiction now that she just can't get out of. It's much worse than my dad's and it's much bigger than alcohol and it's heartbreaking and scary. Um, But I don't, you know, she didn't, she was really seeped in that. And then, you know, I think she took on some of the intensity as that oldest, oldest sibling often does. But I, I think that in some ways the diabetes kind of separated me and made me an outsider a little bit. And I think it's one of the things that has allowed me to differentiate in the ways that I have. That's an amazing perspective that, you know, what, what you look at is like people not caring about you because your medical needs make you more difficult to them. Um, as hard as hard as that is to hear and probably as hard as it is to live with, it also created enough space for you where they weren't trying to suck you back into their gravity. And you were able to just go like, you know, it is okay to be away from these people. They're not really helping me anyway. Like it's like, you know what I mean? Like the, it's just enough, right? Like they just turn yeah, down. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, just enough that you and can kind of And eventually, like this is still something I will totally trip up on, but I trip on it. I trip on it a lot less often. But it eventually made me also stop stop begging to be in the orbit. You know, eventually I found out, you know, you're going to keep getting hurt if you kind of ask for them to care, but they there's too much, and so you know, do that less. I I think we always want approval and care. And so, like I said, I think that's something I will still trip Mm -hmm. up on and think, well, maybe I can tell them about this and they'll react differently. And most of the time I get a pretty similar reaction. And then I think, why would you react that way? And I have to process it. But it's, yeah, not only are they not, you know, kind of pulling me back in because that's bringing stress into their orbit, but I'm also not constantly seeking to get in it because I know that the orbit kind of ends up hurting me, even though I also know that there's a lot of love in that orbit. Um, and if I just go into it in a very boundaried way, I can experience more of that and less of the unintentional. Does does boundaried also mean understanding who they are and not asking more of them than they have? Yes. Okay. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. You and no, kind of knowing what, that's what I mean when I say like seeing them clearly, kind of knowing what they're capable of, what they aren't, what are my bottom lines? Because just because they're not capable doesn't mean that I should settle on everything. There are some limits that I just, all right, well, then I don't, I will not, like you don't have the right to this type of information anymore because I'm not going to allow myself to get hurt by that. But this is a place where we can connect and it's like safe and I will choose to connect that way instead. Mm. Um, you know, so I, like you you were saying it quite well earlier when you just talked about like I talk about trying to understand parents a lot. And it's not ever that I'm trying to say that everything they did was OK. Like, again, no parent is perfect and including myself and I'm going to give my kids some damage, I'm sure. Um, but 
all, all we can do is our best. It's not ever about saying that if I understand like my dad's childhood, that makes everything he did. Okay. Right. But at least I can understand that it wasn't about me. And it, and it also wasn't about him trying to do that. It was about, this was a situation that was kind of created in him and he's doing the best that he can. And sometimes that wasn't good enough and it's okay that I have hurt around that. Um, but it wasn't that he didn't, that he purposefully tried to just do that to me. That was just, that was, you know, that makes sense that he did that. It doesn't make it okay, but it helps me to understand it. And in not a way where I blame myself. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's, you know, I had to do that. It took me a while because my father left on my birthday and that felt personal. Even at, thir oh, even at yeah. 13 years old, I was like, Oh, this can't be my yeah. mistake. Right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, um, but still, it's still meaningless. Like, I think, yeah. I, I think that, I mean, I don't know. Right. But I challenged my dad in a way that he wasn't expecting and he wasn't equipped to fight back with. And mm -hmm. I mean, if, if he did that on purpose or not, it, it felt on purpose. And then, yeah. but it took me, it took me years, but it took me years to realize what you just said. Like, it doesn't matter. Like it, it, it really, whether he felt that way or not, I was, I was 13. Like I didn't, yeah. I didn't do anything to him. You know what I mean? Like I was just living my no. life trying to be, a, you know, trying to get through. Yeah. And so once you just let that go, there, yeah. it's funny it's funny how much talk therapy can help with that too. I, I don't need, listen, oh, yeah. I don't need therapy. I have this podcast, but, um, but just talking things through and saying them out loud as crazy as it sounds. And I'll, I'll say this over and over again forever. Like you have these problems, these things that are twisted and interwound into your soul and your heart and your brain. And it feels like, well, how would I ever separate these things so that I can, I can be free of them. And I think sometimes the truth is you just have to say them out loud. And as crazy as it yeah. sounds, it sort of loses its power. It's like saying Voldemort. You, you know what I mean? Like the, yeah. their, the biggest problem they had in the in the Harry Potter films, if I if I can just mix reality with fiction, is, is that they gave the guy the power by being afraid of him. And yeah. and once once one guy stood up and he was like, I don't care. I'm going to say his name. Like it, it, it's the beginning of the end right there. Like you just have to sort of just name the thing and say it out yeah. loud. Yeah. Well, and you have to get it out there uh, with some different sounding boards, because like when it's just in your head, it's being validated by all the stuff that created the thought to begin with. But it's when you get out and you start to realize like, oh, so someone just had a different reaction to that. I guess not everybody's family did that. You know, I think as humans, we're very used to like, we just kind of assume that everyone's thinking or experiencing a somewhat similar thing. We're not super comfortable with change or difference. But, but then when we talk out loud, it, it, it kind of forces us to see that that either doesn't sound right or someone had a response that was so different. And, well, how is their response so different than mine? I thought everyone would think this way. Mm -hmm. Well, their parents taught them this. It, it just helps. It That's the only way to see it, you know. And that's so hard about your dad leaving on your, on your birthday. And I also just want to say, like, so typical and age appropriate for you even if it wasn't your birthday, that just adds a level to it. But to to take that on as your own, because until we're like 22, really, we're still, we're very ego focused. Like we're always thinking in some way, you know, about 
Ourself. It's about me. Yeah. Other people are thinking about me. What are they judging about me? It, what, you know, if that's just a very normal way to think, we don't have the ability to truly like step outside and 100% look at someone else's perspective, especially first, usually. And so, you know, that's why so many kids feel like the divorce is their fault. You know, abuse is their fault. It's just at that point, that's like our developmental brain space where, you know, just as I, thought that some of the diabetes stuff was my fault or, you know, I better hide this because you obviously did something wrong to, mm. to make it this way. Yeah, you know, when you so. stop and think about it, my dad was a, he was a simple guy, right? He grew up on a farm. Um, he, he, he didn't go to college. He didn't spend any time self-reflecting. He, he probably didn't leave on my birthday on purpose. It was probably just circumstances. And if I look back four hours before he left, uh, we were traveling somewhere together and he goes, Hey, it's your birthday. And I was like, yeah. And, and he goes, uh, what do you want? And I picked something that was like, in my world, I was like, oh, I'd love to stop at this computer store and get this thing. And it was like $99. And I'm telling you, in a million years, nobody in my house got a $100 gift ever. You know what I mean? Sure. And my yep. dad's like, this is really what you want? I was like, yep. And he pulled out a credit card and he bought it and gave it to me. And mm, I look back yeah. now and I think, oh, God, he knew he was going to leave. Like he knew, yeah. like it was all planned out already. Like, but it, I, so like when I can really, as an adult, look back on it, I think if he's trying to hurt me, he wouldn't have bought me a big gift before he did it. And I was yeah, like, oh, no. this had nothing to do with me. But like, to your yeah. point, everything feels like it's about you, especially when you're younger. And, and, yeah. and so anyway, you know, this just was random. He wasn't even like thoughtful enough to think, Oh, I am going to leave, but let's not do it on Scott's birthday. Like he just, he yeah. wasn't that well thought out. You, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. I don't think he was well thought enough out to hurt somebody on purpose, to be perfectly honest with you. Um, mm -hmm. it's, a, yeah, it's, Oh my God, we could talk about this forever. I got to let you go. We've been doing you this could. for two yes. hours, Yeah, two hours. Um, I don't know if this is the longest one ever, but we got to be right in the ballpark. So I need <laughs> okay. to ask you yeah. one question before we go. Okay. Um, because I want to use the right phrasing at some yeah. point, this is going to come out it's going to be called after dark colon something. What should it be called? Oh God. I hate this question. You, I think you are so much more. No, but what did we talk about today? If you had to boil it down. Oh, you mean, okay. So not, not one of your clever, not titles, a clever, no, like no, no, no. You don't have to. Topic yeah. Okay. I can yeah. do that. What okay. is, what, um, what did, what did we, we talk, talk about? about? Um, Ooh. It's not that easy. See, all you people are like Scott's titles. Don't tell me what's in the. It's not that easy. And so, like, is this? It's is it childhood trauma? Is it? Um, is it child of like alcoholism? It, like, what's the core of mm -hmm. your story? I'm asking you to tell me what your origin is. Yeah, this and this isn't worded well. But I'm trying to think of a better. Um, say it. We'll, like we'll, work, we'll, work, we'll workshop it. But Just I, say I it. think it's kind of like growing up with like diabetes without enough like help or support or, or in a household without like the tools to deal with it. Um, mm -hmm. Again, it needs to be way shorter. But I, to me, that's how I would summarize it is just that I did not get enough help. What if I called um, it after dark unsupported? Perfect. Will that work? Yeah, I okay. think that's great. All right. Because I, yeah. I, you know, people 
it started out where people were like, you know, if you made the title something that I knew was going on, and I would tell them, like, I, I don't know what we talk. I mean, it's an hour. You're talking about a number of things. Like, I can't yeah. just, you know, like, I don't know what to We talked it. about so many things outside of my unsupported diabetic childhood, you yeah. know, and that's one of the things I love about the podcast. Um, and I always chuckle at the titles. So oh. just so you just well, not that that has to count for anything, but thank you. I do. Did you, did you yeah. catch chicken thighs last week? I did. I have, like I said, I'm like two months behind, <laughs> so I haven't seen the most recent, but I will, I'm chuckling at that as you say it. So I'm sure I will again when I get to it. I appreciate that very much. All right. I, I, I really thank you so much for doing this. Hold on one second for me. Okay. Okay. A huge thank you to one of today's sponsors. Gvoke Glucagon. Find out more about Gvoke Hypopen at gvokeglucagon.com forward slash juice box. You spell that G V O K E G L U C A G O N dot com forward slash juice box. I also want to thank US Med and remind you that you can get started today by calling 888-721-1514 or going to the link usmed.com forward slash juice box. Thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate it. I'll be back again very soon with another episode of the Juice Box Podcast. Don't forget, you can save 10% off your first month of therapy with BetterHelp with my link, betterhelp.com forward slash juice box. And you can save 35% off your entire order of sheets, bedding, towels, uh, sweatpants, all the great stuff they have at cozyearth.com by using the offer code juicebox at checkout. And if you're looking for a great community around diabetes, head over to the private Facebook group, Juicebox Podcast, Type 1 Diabetes. It now has 36,000 members in it. All it's missing is you.